Fusion is a great stepping stone. It's a great starting point, but it's super important that you also get out there in machine shops and you actually learn the fundamental of machining because it's not just about code. There's a science to how material gets removed. Welcome to the HPA Tune In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we've got Matt Bernasconi, or as he's known on Instagram, Matt826, joining us. Uh, Matt is a master of 3D modelling, CAD design, and CAD manufacturing, CAD programming. Uh, this is something that's become a lot more prevalent in our industry as access to this technology has uh, continued to come down in price. And while Matt works at the upper end of this industry, uh, specifically he is working at Kibi Tech who build some amazing pre-runners as well as really high-end aftermarket suspension components for a range of popular trucks. We're also seeing that this technology is creeping in even at the enthusiast level with the access to free or cheaply available software like Autodesk's Fusion 360 for home enthusiasts use we're really seeing this transform what the average enthusiast is able to design and develop in their home workshop or garage and in particular when we also add to this the access to uh, technology such as 3D printing really what we can do with our own project cars has become so much more involved or so much more intricate and the end results that we can produce obviously uh, that much better however when we start this journey, of course, there is a lot to learn and a lot that we need to understand before we can jump in and start designing parts. So we talked to Matt about how he got his start, how he started using CAD, how he moved into 3D modelling, as well as how he ended up getting involved with programming uh, CNC machinery. He's had a really interesting career, culminating in his position right now at Kibbe Tech and I know I've personally spent hours scrolling Matt's Instagram feed looking at some of the most insane parts that I've seen in the automotive industry and I'd certainly urge you if 3D modelling is of interest to you, jump in and check it out. We'll of course put a link to his social media account uh, in our show notes. Now before we get into our interview, for those who are maybe new to the podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school. We specialise in a range of performance automotive topics including engine building, engine tuning, wiring Irrelevant to today's topic, we also cover some fabrication uh, topics including the fundamentals of motorsport fabrication as well as motorsport TIG welding. If you are interested in learning these skills, I'll put a link in the show notes to both of those courses. And I know that a lot of enthusiasts who are working on their own cars would maybe think that the skills of fabrication are out of reach, maybe it's something that you can't learn. The reality is there's there's no magic here. If you understand the tools that are required for motorsport fabrication, a lot of which are cheaply and easily available, and you understand how to use these tools properly, how to plan out your projects and how to uh, then action those plans, then it's totally within the capability of most enthusiasts with a little bit of patience and an eye for detail. So uh, again, we'll put a link to those two courses in our show notes and as a special deal you can use the podcast 75 coupon code that's going to get you 75 dollars off the purchase of your first hpa course 
All right, with that introduction out of the way, let's jump into our chat now with Matt. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks heaps for joining us today. And as we usually do with most of our guests, let's just get started by getting a little bit of background on how you got involved with the automotive industry and particularly your skill set around 3D modeling. Hey, Andre. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, first of all. I've always pretty much been obsessed about cars and computers since the day I can remember. Um, I did have an opportunity to work for a shop uh, when I was 17 years old, and uh, it was basically just general machining and kind of like a grunt worker. Uh, didn't do anything other than grinding, you know, plates using iron workers, conventional lathe, a bridge port. And um, I was, like I said, pretty young. I got kind of in the mix with that. And I guess that's kind of how I got involved initially with the automotive industry. So that's quite deep for a 17-year-old. You're straight into learning how to use a lathe and a mill. And is that something that you were passed that knowledge on from whoever you're working for? Yeah, I mean, when I first started, I guess if you go back a little bit further, my first introduction to like anything automotive at all really was myself just playing around on the computer. And uh, in high school, I started uh, using CAD. So the high school I was in introduced a CAD program. And it was actually by complete accident that I actually enrolled into that program. I originally wanted to do auto tech because I was obsessed with cars. And um, that class was filled. And so they said, well, here's an AutoCAD class. You should take this. And I said, sure. I didn't have any idea. You know, I didn't really have any uh, guidance growing up saying like, hey, you need to do this or that or engineer peers or anything like this. I just knew I liked cars. I like computers. And I essentially just wanted to get into an uh, automotive class, you know, um, where I can work on cars with like my friends and stuff like that. So I signed up for that class. I showed up and there was just like a lab. And I was like, it was a computer lab. And I was like, well, where are the cars? And um, it was instructed by the same teacher that was instructing the um, auto shop class, Mr. Kylie was his name. He was kind of like, no, this is, this, there's no cars here. This is the computer lab. We're doing CAD. And I was like, well, what does that mean? He's like, it's computer-aided design. It's drafting. And I was like, okay, well, that sounds cool. I, I could do that. This was like 19... I don't know, 1999, year 2000. So you have to remember like Toy Story was fairly new. <laughs> it was like three or four years old. And um, so anything like with the idea of putting something in the computer was like pretty awesome to me. Like, you know, just watching those films is like, oh, computer animation. That's what I thought initially. So I was like, yeah, I'll give it a whirl. And um, that was basically uh, my introduction to CAD. I remember the coolest thing was just drawing a cube and like, cutting a circle out of it. It was like the most basic thing. And then like kind of spinning it around. I'm like 15 years old, right? Or, and I'm just like, whoa, like this is just mind blowing for sure. So I was like, this is one of the coolest things ever. I, um, I eventually got my own little version of AutoCAD and I just sat in my room and I drew everything, everything from the spools on my bed to the rails on my closet door, even the blankets um, through, uh, through learning how to use CAD. When I got my first job, actually, my mom is the one who got me the job. She uh, she said, hey, you know, this guy has a, a speed shop and it's kind of hard work, but there's race cars involved, this and that. And I was like, okay, sold. I'm going to go there. 
And I started working there. Uh, they kind of just trained me on site. It wasn't anything special. You know, it was really just manual labor. Like you just show up, you, you know, you stamp a bunch of holes and some plates and you go home with a paycheck. And um, I just liked the idea that maybe there'd be a chance that I could see a race car come through there. And um, I'd never seen a race car in, in real life. You know, it was kind of like, it would be really cool to see one, you know? So for about three or four months, I was just stamping holes and just doing manual machining. They just teach me on site, like, you know, turn this button, you're going to spin this, it's going to turn this and, you know, on the lathe or you're going to drill some holes on this plate. And, and then one day, um, I think the owner of the company was working, uh, he was working a full-time job. So this was like a side gig for him. He had to update a CAD drawing because nobody at that shop knew how to use CAD. And so I remember it was late one night. He shows up, he turns on his computer and I see the AutoCAD logo and I'm like, Hey, AutoCAD, I can do that. Well, can you do this? And he pulls up like a little plate and it has like four holes, like a standard bowl pattern. And he goes, can you widen this a quarter of an inch or elongate these holes a quarter of an inch? I was like, yeah, I can do that. And you know, I was obsessed. So I was, I knew all the quick keys. And it took me about 15 seconds to modify everything. And he was like, mind blown. He was, okay, well, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to give you a $2 raise and you're, you're going to have an added title to your job. You're not just going to stand there and machine and do little things. And I said, okay. So um, from that point on, I was known as the CAD kid. It was a lot of fun. You know, uh, we were at the races uh, every other weekend and um, it gave me a lot of insight to what it takes to campaign a race car. And so I realized that um, a lot of the parts I was making in the back I could avoid if I just updated certain drawings a certain way. So one of my incentives was fix the drawings and I could do less work out back. So simplify the entire process yeah. by, by getting the drawings right. Yeah. Okay, so how, how long were you with that company for? I was with that company for a decade. I imagine you've, you've learned a lot of new skills over that time. Are you still predominantly involved with the, the CAD work and the machining or had your role branched out over that time as well? No. So I, I just worked for that one company. And um, like I said, I did the two years uh, in high school for CAD. I used Auto, Autodesk AutoCAD. And um, in 2004, I wanted to kind of expand my, my, um, my knowledge in just computers. So I actually signed up to the junior college. I did a class for CG 101, which is basically um, like Photoshop, Illustrator, and design, more like graphic arts. <clears throat> and I learned a lot. It was, um, I learned a lot about colors and, you know, um, shades and how everything works with that, with that area. And I feel like that plays a lot, uh, a big role onto what I do today also because <clears throat> I still use that day, day in and day out. And then uh, when I was 19 years old, right around 2005, the company I was working for, they needed to bring some machining in-house. We ended up buying a Haas lathe. And then that's when the owner was kind of like, hey, you know, you're really good with CAD. Um, I think you should give this a shot. I think you should try to program this machine. I said, okay. Did uh, about six months of um, control training. And at 19 years old, I, the machine got delivered. They set it all up. It was super nice. And I remember, I remember um, I walked up to the machine and the owner goes, okay, let's turn it on. Let's make something. And I was like, sure. And I go running to the machine and I'm like looking at it and I'm like, holy crap. They never taught me in school how to turn on the machine. And I was, this is bad. So, <laughs> so I was like, okay, I, I need to call somebody for help. Pretty much after that, I kind of just ran with it. And I was like, okay, I got this. Um, I'm just going to program this. And 
it was just a lathe, so it's two axes. So the idea of spending, you know, five or $10,000 on software to program it was out of the question. It was like, we're not going to spend money on software. You just have to type the code in. Right, let's just stop there and pause for a second and dive a bit more into this because this is just on the, the fringe of my, my understanding and I'm guessing there's probably a few listening to this that are in a similar position. So I, I know that a lot of people have this uh, misconception that with CAD or 3D modelling you design this component and then just uh, press print and it just goes to the lathe or the mill and out pops your part. But this programming, there's, there's a bit more to it. There's another step in between. And you've just talked about software versus manually programming the, the lathe. So what does that actually entail? How, how does that sort of link your your CAD design to how the, the lathe will actually machine that finished component? Well, to be honest, I feel like they're just two different entities. I don't really feel like, well, for sure these days, it's a lot easier to get involved with machining. But it all comes down to G-code. And G-code is basically the language that the machine understands. You have to understand, too, the machine is nothing but a fancy calculator. It's not a computer. Um, a lot of people think that you see a, like a, this, um, you know, this DRO, digital readout, and, and you're like, oh, you just plug something in there and you press go. If something happens, it's going to stop. It doesn't. It's a calculator. If you tell it to go 20 inches this way, it's going to go 20 inches that way. And there's no safety protocol that's going to keep it from doing that. So the first thing I would say is the, um, the G code is essentially what the machine relies on. And uh, if you enter the G code in there correctly, then um, the machine will output the right uh, information and get the part going. But just by hand typing it, you can hand type it incorrectly. Just like on a computer, if you if you have CAM software, computer-aided machining software, uh, it can output um, code that's incorrect also. And that will cause a collision as well. So that can break some expensive uh, tooling or damage the part that you've just about finished yeah, or manufacturing. or even damage yourself. You can get hurt for sure. Um, I don't think... You know, machines are fun. You can do so much cool stuff, but they are dangerous. I mean, <laughs> they can cause some damage. Uh, if you're lucky, it's very minimal. But most of the times um, when you talk about a machine crashing, you're talking of thousands of dollars at a time, talking thousands of dollars in repairs, thousands of dollars in loss of productivity. So it's a, it is a very um, involved thing. I was fortunate that when I first started machining, they kind of forced me to use, um, to, to learn programming, not to just jump into computers and say, Hey, you know, put it in the computer and it's going to print out a code and you'll be good to go. Cause I would be lost, you know, if I didn't understand the code. And so for two years, I, I hand wrote code. I, I literally sat at the digital readout and typed in hundreds of lines at a time and I memorized all the codes. Um, all the M codes, all the G codes. And so if I needed to make something, I could literally write a code faster than going to conventional and just trying to do it by hand. You know, it was second nature. Would I be right in guessing that, that these days with computer aided machining and the advances, maybe some of that manual programming skill ha has been lost by a lot of people in the industry now? For sure. I think there is a misconception that 
that you can just get a software and you can become a, a programmer. And man, when I was growing up, if you had the title of a programmer, it was a big deal. Like people work for a long time to get that title of a programmer. You know, you have to, you have to, there's stepping stones, right? You start off in the very beginning, like if you were to go to a machine shop, you start off in the very beginning, button pushing. You know, you're just going to load a part. You're going to push the green button. It's going to come out. You're going to do an in-process inspection. And you'll do that for a number of months, if not years. And then you kind of graduate from that in the machine shop and you go into setting up, you know, where you're actually getting the program, you're setting up tools, and you're doing first article inspections, essentially um, running the part that the programmer has prepared for you. And then when you do that for a number of years, then you um, are able to get on the computer and program a part. And then you're the person that hands the, the program to the to the setup guy, then the operator goes from there. So there's like this, um, there's these levels to get to that program. Sort of a hierarchy if you like. Yeah. And, and you have to, you have to kind of do these stepping stones because if you miss one of those and you program something incorrectly, um, the operator isn't at fault here. The, the guy that's pushing the button isn't at fault. It's a programmer. The programmer needs to know all of these steps. He needs to know everything beneath him in order to, to do his job correctly. And a lot of times the software, you know, like we'll get more into fusion and all that stuff, but programming on fusion, I guess is to me seems more like a hobbyist thing. It's, it's not something that I would say I can program on fusion. I'm a programmer. I'm going to go to machine shop. I'm going to have a career. That's not, I don't think that's how it works. Is that maybe, and we'll, we, as you say, we're, we're going to dive into Fusion 360 shortly, but is that maybe giving a lot of the enthusiast level modelers maybe a false sense of, of their capabilities and where they'd fit into industry, do you think? Um, no, you know. Because, I mean, obviously they, they haven't had the extensive experience that you've had at each step of the way yeah. to build up that full full understanding. They're kind of just diving in into one specific area, correct? Right, yeah. I mean, it depends on who is uh, reading the terms, I guess. Because Fusion, uh, you can program. You can do it. And it's very, very intuitive. Um, it's amazing how good it is, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I think, like I said, for a hobbyist, if you're going to, if you're a guy in a computer and you have access to a machine and you want to machine something, you know, quick and easy, that's the fastest way to get in there and do it. Um, and it works for most people and most things. Um, I think that you draw the line when you start talking about a machine shop. And I'm trying to watch my words here because I am still having second opinions. Now, Fusion is still very new, but... I, I have been mind blown by what Fusion can do. So I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of stop a little bit, but um, I'm going to say it, what you can do with Fusion and any software comes down to the sole experience of the person, not necessarily the software, but your, your bottleneck is going to be your personal experience and your growth and, and what you can do with that software for sure. And uh, Fusion is a great stepping stone. It's a great starting point. But it's super important that you also get out there in machine shops and you actually learn the fundamental of machining because it's not just about code. There's a science to how material gets removed and how you remove that material, how fast you remove that material and what you do as far as being creative 
to hold that material to create what you're going to be making. This is sort of comes down to an aspect of not every component that you could design in the lights of Fusion 360 is going to be either feasible to manufacture or if it's feasible to manufacture, depending on how the, the part has been designed and modelled, you could have a very complex machining process versus some slight tweaks would make the component much easier, quicker and hence cheaper to, to manufacture. Is that sort of what, what I'm picking up from that? Yeah, I mean, um, there's going to be areas where, like in the, in the design process, where you might make a feature, so to speak, that can't be machined, right? Uh, I guess that goes back to the engineering side of it. But if you were to get a part from like um, a customer and, so, and they say, hey, machine this, then I think that it would be a little difficult in most cases. To, it, just, it just comes down to experience, I feel like. you know, I don't think you can just get the software and just jump in and start making stuff. Like anything else, the more you do it, the more you learn. And um, that experience, it's you pick up a lot more if you're in an environment where machining is what they do. Okay. Before we get too much deeper into this side of of, of the conversation, let's just come back a, a little bit and sort of fill in the the rest of your sort of background up to the point sure. where you currently are working today with Kibbe Tech. I feel like we've kind of yeah. we've gone down a rabbit hole, which is absolutely <laughs> fine. But but just for the sake of completeness, because. You know, particularly those who are maybe following you on social media at the moment, your your Instagram is is all about these amazing components you're making for these next level off road competition trucks at Kibbe Tech. Yeah. And I just I want to sort of join the dots. How how did you sort of get to to where you are in your career right now? Yeah. So in 2007, <clears throat> we got a pamphlet in the mail, and basically it was a um, a pamphlet for Autodesk Inventor. And it was this new software it's supposed to be way better than AutoCAD, which it is. And at that point, they were like, hey, do you want to try the software out? I said, sure. When they came out and we purchased that software, they recommended that we go to um, Kativ Technologies, which is a trade school for Inventor and 3D modeling. So I signed up for that. It, you know, it cost whatever amount of money. And then I uh, was there for six months, um, three days out of the week. And it was a really cool program. I learned a lot there. A lot of the fundamentals, for sure. Uh, from there, you know, in that same business, I ended up doing a little bit of robotic welding, um, some fabrication. We built chassis for drag race cars, production welding, robotic welding, uh, a little bit of everything, really. And then um, right around 2015, I actually ended up leaving that company and going into aerospace um, as a uh, okay. as a programmer. So. Uh, during that time at that at that business, I was actually doing um, lathe programming, mill programming, and multi-axis programming for machines. So, like throughout that decade, I did a bunch of that stuff as well as fabricating and welding. And I was kind of just a jack of all trades for the most part. Sounds like you had the opportunity though to to really build up a, a very diverse skill set across pretty much every element of, of what you're now doing as well. So you've got that that deep understanding of not just designing a part, but actually what's involved in the machining of that part and then how it integrates with fabrication and the rest of the, the chassis build as well. Was that Would that be sort of a reasonable read on the situation? Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot for sure. Everything from what it takes to be at the racetrack, um, as far as prepping for the racetrack, everything from manufacturing 
um, making processes more efficient. Uh, as, and then obviously the manufacturing standpoint, uh, the, the machining, the programming, uh, and then building a product and then selling a product. It was all like a one-stop shop for the most part. And uh, that was a good platform. But after about 10 years, it kind of plateaued and I was, I stopped learning a whole lot. I was kind of, it started becoming more kind of just monotonous, you know. And so I ended up going to aerospace. I applied to uh, aerospace company. There was a machine shop that was manufacturing um, gears for aerospace companies and military companies. And when I went in there, I initially went in as a junior programmer. And man, what a change of pace. It was uh, it was nothing like I'd imagined. And I f- honestly felt like I'd made a mistake. And it was like starting from ground zero all over again, which was good because, I mean, you think you know everything and then you get put out of your element and then you're like, man, I don't know anything. So going to this company was pretty awesome. Uh, at this company, I, I, I knew that I would learn way more than I needed to, and then eventually go back to the performance industry. Initially, I told myself two years, that turned into three. But it was um, it was a huge learning experience, and it, it taught me a whole bunch. And I think the biggest thing I wanted to learn was how the engineers in the aerospace industry make parts. And so when I got there, I was able to see blueprints of uh, actual engineers and how or why they make parts, certain features that they add to certain parts, understanding. And, and sometimes we would assemble a whole assembly for a plane, uh, you know, or sections of it. So we would, you know, go through the process of assembly, what it takes to do that, traceability, accountability. And the shop was also AS9100 and ISO, which means that there are military and aerospace contracts from the government. So it's pretty top tier stuff. On top of that, the facility that hired me on was really, really high tech. A lot of expensive stuff that you, you're very unlikely to come across in the automotive industry outside of maybe Formula One. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's pretty crazy. You do get used to it and you understand the process and eventually it, it kind of just sets in like like a job, you know? It, it's a, It's pretty cool to learn all of that. So after I learned all of that, I started freelancing and um, my friend Peter is a really good friend of mine and he was delivering batteries to Kibbe Tech and he was kind of like, hey, Matt, like I know you want to be in this area and you know, you're really good with cars and trucks. And so actually I called Kibbe and I said, hey, can I go down there for an interview? And he said, sure. So I showed up and I brought my computer and he was kind of like, uh yeah so what are you applying for and i was like well i can do a little bit of everything so he was kind of like hey um okay well you said you can design let's see if you can draw something up he gave me like an engine mount and then he was like all right well i'll let you know and i was kind of just sitting at home and i was like i should really kind of try to capitalize on this so what i did was i um i got the engine mount i drew up and then i i built a spreadsheet did a parts list then exploded view of it and then going back to my computer graphics background, I did an instruction manual and parts list and added some graphics to it and then basically made it a complete product. And then I emailed him and I said, hey, let me know if you're still interested. This is essentially what we could put together. And he was like, wow, that looks really good. Um, yeah, why don't you come down tomorrow? Sure. 
So showed up on Saturday and I freelanced for Ryan for almost a whole year every weekend. Ryan was like, hey, uh, you should quit your job and just come over here and start building cool stuff again. And, you know, he was still kind of putting the business. Um, and I said, well, if you finish all that, then let's talk. And um, he did. He took care of all that, all that stuff. And he said, all right, let's talk. And I said, sure. And he goes, quit your job. And I said, okay. And the rest, the rest kind of history. So yeah. how, how long ago did you sort of go full time at Kibbe Tech? I started full time with Kibbe Tech in November of 2018. And uh, the, the initial... Uh, thought was <clears throat> we're going to bring in machines and we're going to start a product line and that's going to help with a little bit of revenue so that we can um, build more trucks and then help the process from there. So from what I've seen on Kibitech's website, there's sort of two areas to the business, as you said, products. So basically bolt-in suspension upgrade components, for example, for some of the popular trucks. And then you're also building bespoke complete custom trucks as well for competition is that sort of a, a about right yeah so initially uh, he does like luxury pre-runners and he he builds pretty much as nice as you can get them most of the customers they just have they just want the nicest luxury pre-runner truck so um initially he was kind of just sourcing out a couple machine parts here and there but they're hand fabricating everything and um, really nice. Obviously, they're known for like their welds and their welding and stuff like this. So uh, they had all that kind of taken care of. And they had um, prior CAD guys coming in and doing, you know, small stuff, you know. But I kind of stuck around the longest. And they knew that uh, Ryan knew that I could add the machining process to the whole uh, business. And we uh, not only decided to add a product line, but every truck from that point on was getting something custom, one off or whatever. And um, it was always like, oh, let's try to push the limit on the industry a little bit and see, you know, if we can add this or add that. And something that trophy trucks are doing, we're trying to do the luxury pre-runners and try to lead the some of the industry with uh, with new ways of manufacturing and adding just like a lot more personalization to every single truck. One of the things I haven't heard you talk about here, which I'm interested in diving into a little bit, with a lot of the components that, that I'm seeing you design, you sort of the, there's an element of what would conventionally require maybe uh, some formal training in mechanical engineering, uh, that sort of thing. Is, uh, you haven't talked about any formal qualification in, in that area. Is, is that correct or have we missed that or is this just something you've really just picked up on the job? Yeah, so Ryan's been involved with the off-road industry for a long time. So a lot of the engineering kind of falls back on him. And um, I have had a lot of years in, in like, you know, learning the process and, and building other motorsports applications like drag race cars, for example. Um, but those fundamentals, a lot of those don't work for the off-road industry. So... I rely on him a lot to give me the information and we work together and collaborate um, what it takes to build certain items that have already been done and proven. Yeah, I, I think that's really valuable to, to just add in there because uh, we, we, we have a, a fabrication fundamentals course and uh, some of that comes down to you know designing a component that might be in a stressed application where if it fails, obviously someone could become hurt or even killed. So understanding the stresses involved and, and what you need to design, what you need to do to design a part that's going to be able to withstand that is obviously really, really important. 
And on one one hand, obviously, you could go through a, a mechanical engineering degree and be able to calculate all of that for yourself. But a, a really valid way of doing this is to model what you're making around existing components in the industry that you know have proven to be up to the task. So there's there's always a couple of ways of doing it. I just want to make sure that people don't think that uh, you know, a four-year degree is an absolute requirement in order to be producing aftermarket components in this industry. Now, coming back to the CAD side of things. So we've talked about three software packages so far. You've talked about Autodesk as the manufacturer and they've got AutoCAD, uh, Inventor and Fusion 360. Flip side of that is SolidWorks is also another really popular option. And can you you for a start talk to us about the difference between uh, AutoCAD, which you sort of got started with, and Inventor? Is this sort of... 2D versus 3D or solid modeling versus versus not. Yeah, can you give us sort of a, a lay of the land sure. there? Sure. Um, one thing, Andre, on that last note, I know we were talking about the engineering degree and all that stuff. I just want to make sure that that's also clear. Um, I think it's very important to have an engineering degree, to be honest. Um, I know a lot of people say that it's not so necessary now. And I know there's a whole thing about, you know, school costs a lot of money. It's super important to do that still, in my opinion. If you're going to follow this path, I think that's a shortcut. And if you're going to um, continue and you really want to be involved and you, ro- you want to get in there, I think the engineering route and going to a college, an actual college, is a faster route. I mean, I've been doing this sure. since, like I said, from high school. I'm like going to be 37 now. And I, I feel like I could have chopped that in half had I gone to school. And um, I think school is very important. I think school shows a company that you're able to follow through with what you started. I think that there's an element as well as it. it's going to depend a little bit on what industry you want to end up in. For sure. I mean, there'll be, there'll be areas of this industry where... Uh, you're not even going to get a foot in the door if you don't have a degree. Absolutely. It's just basically a, a prerequisite and it is what it is. Yeah. You know, the flip side of this and probably more what I was referencing is you know, for the home enthusiasts that are coming through and doing our courses, they're probably not aspiring to end up in a position that, that you've got yourself to. And you know, a four-year degree to maybe design and, and manufacture some components on your own car I mean, yes, absolutely. If that's going to spin your wheels and and you see value in that, by by all means, have at it. But also, as at that level, not an absolute requirement. So just to be clear, I'm I'm not knocking uh, a a university education. Yeah, for sure. Now I understand. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing too is uh, the safety factor on a on a truck like this, like the pre runners and the trophy trucks. It's not like a Formula One. Formula One, your safety factors, your safety factors are so much tighter. You know, these things, if they hit the curb too hard, they're exploding. (laughs) But uh, these trophy trucks, there's some things you can't account for in a computer. Like, you know, I saw a trophy truck hit like a three foot boulder head on and was able to go over that, survive and continue a race. And that is some areas you just can't account for. There's certain uh, things out there that a trophy truck or a luxury pre-runner is going to run into. And Things have to be over-engineered a lot. A lot of that does come from experience. And like I said, um, uh, I rely on Ryan. Ryan's, you know, we were able to work together and collaborate really well as far as building and using uh, systems that have been proven to uh, build nice structural components. And it's been, it's been a huge learning curve for me, but 
like you were saying, I mean, the, the computer does help a lot with this. And we do actually use some stress analysis for some items to help improve that. And a lot of it's being used for um, seeing the, um, the overall form of a part. You know, if we see any stress risers, then we can add or decrease material depending on what the graph is showing us. And all of that stuff is still being used. And the, the softwares today, they make everything so intuitive. It's, uh, it's not too difficult to figure out some of these things for, for, for these trucks uh, if you put in the time. Sure. But everything does take some time. It's not like you can just throw some numbers in and 15 minutes later you have an answer. You definitely, you'll work at it and it takes some time to get, to get there for sure. Let's just dive into that term you use, safety factor, and I just want to sort of, you know, you, you gave the the comparison there of you, the F1 car, and obviously at the Formula 1 level, they don't want the cars falling apart under normal conditions, and there is a, a safety factor, so you know, if, if a certain amount of load or force is expected, then they'll have a safety factor that maybe the component will survive 50% more than that, exactly. or maybe in Formula 1 it's, it's a lot less. Mm-hmm. But the, the sort of, where that safety factor comes in, the, the higher you want that safety factor, generally within reason, the heavier the component is going to be. It's going to be built stronger, which involves more material, which involves more weight, which obviously in any motorsport, weight is the enemy of performance uh, if one's that upper echelon. I mean, I'm guessing with the the likes of your pre-runners, weight is still, I'm, I'm assuming, a consideration, but maybe not quite as much. And again, you've got that situation where you can't expect to encounter a massive boulder so your safety factor is just that much higher is that sort of a, a pretty pretty reasonable read on that situation yeah definitely but yeah if you um the safety factor like between the two is just so astronom- astronomically different because there's so much things you can't account for and so um yeah and these trucks are heavy they're six seven thousand mm. pounds sometimes and um which is i don't know two or three race cars <laughs> for the most sure. part so yeah, I mean, everything is super heavy, steel, uh, even the aluminum parts, they tend to be fairly heavy compared to other um, motorsports uh, applications. So no matter what, uh, these trucks are heavy. Now, like you said, everybody's always weight conscious. So you always want to try to, you know, get to where you're going to be and still be as light as you can be within a certain margin. And I've seen pretty light trucks and I've seen pretty heavy trucks and we've seen them work uh, fairly similar, but at the end of the day, it's, um, some of these trucks, they have to be able to finish the race. That's, that's the biggest battle is finishing it. Yeah. Reliability is critical, obviously. Oh, for sure. A thousand miles of like terrain is, uh, it's a lot to endure and, um, there's a lot of things that you can account for. So. Okay. All right. Coming back to the, the earlier question, the Autodesk products, AutoCAD versus Inventor versus Fusion 360 and then SolidWorks. So can, can you sort of give us a, a high level view of the, the differences between uh, what each is capable of? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so Autodesk Inventor is essentially the same as SolidWorks. Um, SolidWorks and I think uh, Siemens, they have like Solid Edge and the same with Katia. Um, these are all about the same. They have like uh, assembly files, they have part files, and then uh, these the computer essentially grabs um, a bunch of part files, like just the actual files, and they put it into assemblies, and then you kind of work in that environment. 
Uh, Fusion is a little bit more cloud-based. It's a little more streamlined. It's uh, it's more intuitive in certain respects. And then um, I would say Autodesk and AutoCAD, that's more of a drafting um, software. You know, you can still do three-dimensional stuff, but there's not uh, an easy design tree like for engineering. So it's very difficult to do some of the stuff that we do on Autodesk AutoCAD. Inventor, I feel like, is a is a very strong program. And like I said, it's very, very similar to SolidWorks. Uh, it's kind of like a Chevy and Ford. You know, they're same trucks. Maybe the color's a little different. The headlights are a little different. But it's the same thing. There's nothing different about it. They get it. the same job done. Yeah. I personally like Autodesk. Like I said, I've been with Autodesk for my whole life, essentially. But the cool thing that I about Autodesk is it's not just Inventor. You know, they have Fusion um, and they have a number of other softwares like um, 3ds Max, which is a rendering software. Um, a lot of computer animation and computer graphics are done on 3ds Max. And so they have their feet kind of in everything. And a lot of their pro, a lot of their files are interchangeable and native to each other. So that, that helps with going back and forward with, with those softwares. Okay. Fusion 360, one of the, the reasons we're sort of seen that that that's become quite prominent at the enthusiast level is because for you know sort of individual use at least as I understand it, it it's relatively cheap or even and free compared to some of the more professional products like Inventor or, or SolidWorks so how has that become a bit of a game changer in that 3D solid modelling industry for for the enthusiasts I mean as opposed to professionals operating at your level? Yeah so I'm kind of torn on that well I was torn on that I should say if you had asked me that question six months ago, my opinion would have been completely different. But that being said, um, we recent, uh, recently hired a, um, a junior CAD designer here at our shop. And we set him up with Fusion because that's what he was comfortable with. And I saw his work. Everything looked great. And he has pretty much blown my mind on every, on every project he's done using Fusion. And I've gained a whole lot more respect for Fusion over the last couple of months. I think it's a great software. I think it's, uh, it's amazing. The, the amount of value that you get with Fusion. It's, it's just crazy. Um, uh, I'm borderline thinking that it could do almost everything that Inventor can. If not, in some cases, it can do something better, uh, which is kind of hard. It's a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> it's hard pill to swallow. <laughs> so well, that, that was going to be the next follow-up question. You know, where, where are the limitations in Fusion 360 and why would you choose Inventor over Fusion? Uh, I'm not really sure right at this moment. You know, it's one of those things I'm still trying to figure out, but Overall, I've been very impressed with Fusion. I think um, the last couple of months, my mind has definitely been open to what Fusion can do. And the same thing goes for programming. I think uh, for programming, I've used I've used Mastercam, Gibbscam. These are all ten, fifteen thousand dollars softwares just for you know machining specific. And um, and then I've used Inventor HSM, and HSM is basically Autodesk's. Uh, variant to adding machining to CAD software. So HSM can be added to SolidWorks. They have an add-on for Inventor. And it's the same thing for the most part. It gives you the same strategies and options and stuff like that. And then HSM is also in Fusion. But the Fusion one, for some reason or the other, works really, really good, if not better than the other two. You know, they put a lot of effort into Fusion. It shows... You're not really making a real strong case here for um, spending the bigger money. I know, I know. You're telling me because uh, I spend the bigger money. I, I guess though, ultimately, you know, 
3D modeling software, you've mentioned there's a, we've talked a few of them, but there's, there's a wider range out there. I'm guessing because it is a fairly mature technology, within reason, short of learning maybe the, the keyboard shortcuts and the toolbars, et cetera, you could probably take what you've learned on Inventor or Fusion 360 and transfer that across to SolidWorks with only a, a limited sort of learning curve. Is, is that right? I think that Inventor and SolidWorks are a lot more similar than Fusion. Uh, Fusion is a departure for sure. Uh, the way that Fusion works is a little different. If you're in SolidWorks or Inventor, then you draw your sketch, you extrude it, you do this and this and this, and you know you type in your numbers. And Fusion, you're kind of doing the same thing, but you're kind of just dragging and pulling, and you're adding the same numbers just in a different way. And it's just uh, there's less. Slightly different workflow. It feels, yeah, the workflow is different for sure. But the um, I would say that if you're going from Inventor to SolidWorks or SolidWorks to Inventor, you can latch onto those two fairly easy. But if you were to open Fusion, you'd start to wonder where all your stuff is. And, you know, it's kind of like a little different. But it goes the other way around too. If you learn on Fusion and you get thrown into Inventor or SolidWorks, then it's kind of like, uh, well, where's this or where's that? You know, your parts and assemblies, they don't mean the same thing anymore. I, I guess it always it always comes down with, with everything though to, to what you become familiar with. For sure, yeah. And you, know, you, you, you get to understand it, the ins and outs of it, little idiosyncrasies and tricks and tips and, and you're obviously going to end up faster. With that, I find exactly the same with the tuning software that I use day in and day out. I'm, I'm obviously faster with that software and I I can do a better job usually than something that I only see once every year or couple of years, even if the the ECU has a, a higher level of capability, mm-hmm. just to put a, a tuning uh, analogy in there. Now, w- one of the, the sort of technologies we're seeing in the 3D modeling and machining world is the use of uh, artificial intelligence or generative design to basically allow the computer to take some certain inputs and then design or develop the the model uh, around your constraints in terms of weight or strength or cost or whatever that may be. Is that something that you're, you have any experience with personally or you're utilizing? Do you see value in that? Yeah, absolutely. I love generative design. I think it's awesome. I think everything about it's cool. I think it gives us a good opportunity to take a computer and see what it actually thinks needs to happen three-dimensionally. And I think it's the future for sure. But um, I think the only problem with it is accessibility. And that is being able to access generative design is a, is a difficult thing right now. Because you can't just have generative design and just have it free or pay a certain cost. Like Fusion, for example, you, you will have to um, get credits and then use it. And then if you want to use it again, you get more credits. So it's not fairly accessible to continue using it. And it's one of those things where I'd love to play with it more but it's not as accessible as I, I wish it was. Um, I like the idea though. I love it. Like it, even if you don't use it for the finished outcome, it gives you a good understanding of what is going on. And then even if you want to take that approach and, you know, kind of work um, from an aesthetic value and say like, okay, well, this has to be here. We can give it this kind of styling cue and then kind of work with that. I think it'll give more parts a... Um, an aesthetic and physical, like mechanical feeling all at once. So breaking that down, maybe 
giving the designer an opportunity to to see an alternative solution for that particular part that maybe wouldn't be uh, immediately apparent. And, and then even if you're not using generative design, you can incorporate those design elements into your finished product. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, the things that we do tend to see with generative design components is they all have this kind of pretty intricate organic look to them. Yeah. Um, does that cause sort of issues around the actual machining processes? Because I can only imagine that the machining of these organic designs is going to be much, much more time consuming and involved than something that's more sort of conventional in, in its in its design. Or do you get to a situation where some of these components simply cannot be machined on a conventional mill? I would say most of them can't be machined. <laughs> yeah Perfect. yeah the thing is like like i said i think it's great that it gives you an insight as to the general shape of a part mechanically and like how it works and the stresses and you can use that as a guideline to create a part that can be machined but you know as far as manufacturing you can always manufacture a generative design part through 3d printing right so you can always go metal 3D printing or plastic 3D printing, whatever whatever the part's being used for, you know, the carbon 3D printing. You can use it for that, but that's not really that conventional, you know? Like, um, you're not going to just 3D print some metal parts unless you're like Josh, the guy that was just on here the other day with his alpha. <laughs> that's a little different. Josh Bellens, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's great. His project's awesome. But... Um, you know, it's it's difficult to to kind of, you know, have access to those machines or even pay to have something metal 3D printed right now. It's uh, you know, I'm sure in the future. I, I mean, I'm guessing as well the the likes of the the metal 3D printing. While I know that technology is rapidly evolving, and even conventional plastic 3D printing, uh, I mean the it's still it's not really something that's that's uh, viable for a production scale uh, manufacturing is it it's more for small scale one-offs or prototyping um, as opposed to manufacturing at scale is is that correct yeah right now it is for sure um, but it's like a 3d printer you know your, your standard plastic 3d printer just about everybody has one now I feel like you know I have one and I use it all the time for whatever but yeah eventually the you know the evolution of machining and manufacturing is so fast, you know, it'll be to the point where everybody has one eventually for sure. There's no doubt. No doubt. But for now it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's definitely good for rapid prototyping. Uh, it's also very good for, um, there's a lot of aerospace parts that are doing, uh, the, the 3d printing because there's, um, there's engineering that, you know, they're starting to do now where they're designing features that can't be machined with, with that actual manufacturing process in mind. So they're just going that direction and that's the only way to do it, you know? All right. Um, now, just we, we've sort of touched on this a, a little bit in terms of validating a component in terms of the forces that are likely to be present and, and how you sort of have the confidence when you manufacture or designing a component, I should say, that, that it's going to put up with uh, hitting a boulder at sort of 100 mile an hour. Uh <sighs> With these 3D modeling packages, uh, you know, usually there's the ability to also run some analysis, finite element stress analysis on the component to sort of validate it in, in the 
virtual world before you ever actually manufacture it. Are you utilising any of that or does it just come back as you've already talked about, sort of liaising with Ryan, talking about his experience, looking at the part and, and what you're expecting it to, to deal with as opposed to the FEA side of things? Yeah, I mean, so um, a lot of the times we have parts that have already been tested and proven through experience. And uh, we, we have actually gone re- reverse engineering those parts, putting them in the computer and testing those parts, seeing what kind of stresses they are being put through, as well as seeing what, what their actually uh, weak points are, if any. And then from that point, we use that as a baseline. And then from there, we can either change the material. Um, in some cases, like if we're going from a fabricated sheet metal steel part and we want to make <clears throat> an aluminum counterpart, that is going to replace it, then we can use the weight, we can use the shape, and then we can actually use the same stress testing to see um, with those numbers where we're at with the new counterpart that's made out of aluminum. That's, that's an interesting approach to it, which actually makes a lot of sense. And um, you've mentioned Josh Valens, and we'll link to his his podcast episode as well, because there's a lot of crossover, and I, I, I think that would be interesting to anyone who's enjoying this chat as well. But um, one of the, the uh, comments we had in that podcast with Josh was about the FEA side of things in terms of it's it's kind of a garbage in, garbage out kind of deal. And, and what I mean by that is, it's going to be potentially very difficult for most of us at the enthusiast level to know with 100% certainty what what stresses are going to a component's going to actually experience so the way you're doing it is kind of the other way around you've got a component that has been out there in competition you know it's up to the task so then modeling that you know it's not failing so you can kind of get a sense of what forces it can withstand, and then you're using those inputs to then design the new component. Is that sort of it in a nutshell? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and then uh, we also have, um, you know, the newer products that are coming out. We're trying uh, to kind of push the limit on where that boundary is, you know, that line of of, um, of limit, you know, where that part's actually going to fail. And it's pretty crazy, you know, the um, you'd be surprised how strong some of the materials actually are. I've been I've seen some of these parts go through some havoc and the fact that they can survive and still go on and on and on. It's pretty wild. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is experience. A lot of it is learning from, from, from those experiences and, and pre-existing parts that have been put out there, put through their paces and see how they would stand. And then also sometimes, you know, it's not always glorious. Like fortunately we haven't had anything catastrophic happen or anything like that, but if a part gets damaged, so to speak, then we can look at that part and say, okay, even it didn't fail, but we saw it got damaged a certain way. We might change the shape a little bit so that it could either slide over something. Like for example, if an arm were to hit a rock or something and it has a flat face, then we might add a draft angle to help kind of bring it to where that arm can actually slide over something a little easier. So there's still iterations in your designs as you test them in the field and see how they're actually withstanding mm-hmm. Competition, yeah. essentially. Yep. And I'm interested to know, sort of, when, when you're looking at designing something like a trailing arm, you you've got the ability to machine that out of a solid billet of alloy, mm-hmm. or alternatively, you could hand fabricate that out of uh, sheet metal. How how do you decide which is the right option for a, a component like that? Because I've seen that you've kind of used both in in certain circumstances. Yeah. So. The uh, sheet metal arms have been around for a long time. You know, I think event- essentially they started off like tubular arms with some sheet metal stuff. 
And um, eventually they, they evolved to just completely fabricated. Sometimes they have Himes, sometimes they're just unibolt welded to the ends. But I think the whole industry is uh, moving towards aluminum for weight and strength. And um, the aluminum is 7075, so it's not just like your typical uh, 6061. 6061 is great for a lot of things. The 7075 has uh, a higher strength than 6061. It's also way more expensive. But 7075, just uh, it's working out amazing, and we're able to make lighter components. And when we talk about a trailing arm, half of that is unsprung. So um, taking weight off of that is is uh, more important than pulling weight out of the cab. Uh, it's going to be more um, important for sure. So uh, getting the weight down, increasing the strength and durability is is a great thing. And uh, there hasn't been any failures of those that I that I know of. Um, as, well, not with our stuff at least. But the the only failures that come to mind are when trucks get totaled. But I mean, you're talking the whole truck is getting totaled. So it's not like the the arm failed. It's part of the whole deal. You know, the truck is damaged. The whole thing's destroyed. You know, shocks are bent in half. So if the arm breaks in that scenario, well, it's it is what it is. But as long as it wasn't the reason that all of that happened. But naturally, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you obviously can't design a component with a realistic weight that's going to be completely indestructible. That's just just not realistic. For sure. So we start off slow, you know, like, uh, again, kind of going back to what I was talking about, um, getting a, a pre-existing fabricated arm. Um, a lot of times I'll use weight as a, as a good baseline. And, um, and then between the weight and the stress testing, we can see if there's any stress risers and we could... Uh, remove or add material in areas that are prone to stress and then from that point we use weight as a gauge so like um, naturally the the weight or the strength to weight ratio on 775 is going to be greater so we can um, we can start off at like 20 percent less weight overall when the part is done and then from that point we can add or take away depending on uh, which direction we want to go so we've been we've been continuing to decrease um, the weight uh, to a point where we're happy. And right now we're, we're, we're taking about 25% of the weight out of um, a conventional steel arm. So that's great weight savings in the right place. Yeah. Particularly as you say, the, the savings in the unsprung weight is going to allow the suspension to do its, its job better. Uh, one of the aspects were the material like aluminium 7075, which you say you're using there. As I understand it, and please accept here, I'm definitely not a metallurgist, is that uh, it does have a, a fatigue life as a potential issue, which uh, a chromoly arm is not as susceptible to fatigue-related failure. Am I right on that? And if so, how do you sort of deal with that fatigue aspect with uh, the alloy material? Yeah, I don't believe that it's greater. Um, Sheet metal arms, they're welded together. And um, with the amount of damage that they get, you know, rather than, you know, getting a little piece cut out of it, like the aluminum would chip away, you know, more or less. Uh, The steel, it kind of starts to mushroom and wants to separate. Um, from its construction and especially if water gets in it then it can rust from the inside out so overall i think um, aluminum is a, is a greater option for sure sure okay in terms of the design for suspension components particularly 
do you go through how are you designing or developing the kinematics the the movement of those those arms etc to to optimize the suspension uh, geometry through travel because obviously the, these pre-runners are, have got massive amounts of suspension travel as well um, is that a, a concern how how are you dealing with that yeah so all of that's done in autodesk inventor <clears throat> or in like anybody else in the industry it's all done to the computer so we have um like we have our travel numbers we have our track width we have our wheelbase numbers and using all of these factors you know we'll start off like the front end for example i might start off with like the spindle um, set the kingpin angle the wheel offset make sure my scrub radius is where i want it check the track width and then from there um once that's set you know a lot of times um, i'll start constructing geometry for my lower arms and then after that we'll we'll basically have uh, a good idea of where we want our camber curve to be, uh, essentially where that camber is going to be through that full range of motion. And we're dealing with nothing but travel, you know, anywhere between 19 to 24 inches of travel on the front, uh, full suspension travel, upwards to 33 inches of travel on the rear. And so we want to make sure that when it's going through that range of motion, that that camber curve is and the, and the truck's tilting, that that's going to have a good, foundation to sit on when that whole truck is moving around because there's a lot of movement going on so uh, we'll set we'll set all of the the camber curves and and then look at the caster and the caster curve and, and all that stuff and then from there i think the last thing we usually do is um just set the ackerman you know the steering and a lot of times when we do the steering we'll we'll um we'll make sure that the bump steer is correct through the range of motion and then kind of go through there and then i'm also speaking on full full truck builds. These are not retrofit like production stuff. This is like ground up for the most part. It's a little different on pre-existing applications. Like if you have a truck that needs a, a long travel kit or something like that, you have to work around parameters that are already pre-existing. But if... Um, something more of a compromise. Yeah, but but our chassis, uh, our chassis, we're allowed full realm on every aspect. So we do everything. It's 100% ground up. It's all proprietary. And it's all the geometry that we like and we see that works the best. And so we'll set all those those uh, those numbers and boundaries in place. And then once the suspension is being cycled in geometry, then we start building and fabricating, you know, the uprights, the lowers. We make sure that there's no interference. We'll steer the truck left and right to the full range of motion. We'll put everything in the drawings, everything from the pump, uh, the steering arm, steering boxes, um, everything to show exactly what's going to happen. Make sure everything's bumped out, fully grouped, and that we're seeing all the numbers that we want to see before we even start any manufacturing part of that. So this would be one of the one of the big advantages of developing the entire truck in 3D first before anything's actually manufactured is as you say there you can you can move the suspension through full boop and droop mm-hmm. full droop yeah. and compression <laughs> and then full articulation of the steering and essentially ensure that you're going to have no interference with any of those components where I'm sure in the past um, many people have been caught out by something they didn't anticipate once they actually uh, are, are sort of pretty deep into the fabrication process obviously that's a, a waste of time and uh, a lot of money if you sort of have to re redesign something that's already partially built correct yeah definitely and these trucks are pretty big but man you'd be surprised packaging is always a nightmare i feel like you can never get away from that um packaging your arms and your shock packages especially with the shock packages getting so much larger these days you know you have four and a half inch 
bypasses with um, IBP reservoirs and the shocks are massive. I, I don't know if you've ever <laughs> seen one in person, but they're humongous. And fitting all those shocks and the steering and um, cycling it all and make sure these tires are not hitting the, you know, the, the cockpit, it's all, it's still a bit of a challenge. And um, having the computer to do it for you or having the computer as an aid, it's really nice because you can, you can start fabricating your arm and then you might see that your upright might have a little bit of issue when it's at full bump at full steer or something. And you can clearance out your spindle or you can choose to re redesign your arm a little bit so that it has just that right amount of clearance and everything comes out perfect. I mean, I have some guys ask me like, well, how do you trust like it's going to be exactly what's on the computer? It's pretty dang close. Like you would be surprised. It's like, you know, thousands, you know, I, I, it's, hmm. it's ridiculously accurate. When you're cycling the suspension like that or, or moving the steering, is is it your responsibility to sort of zoom in in the areas that you think there might be some interference and physically check the clearance, or will Inventor actually tell you, "Hey, warning! There's there's a clash here. This is hitting this." Yeah, so you can have. Um, so me personally, I don't do that. I I will just look at it because I can see clearly what's going on or not. But in in my like in, when I'm designing something, I'll make sure that all my constraints are in place. So. The shocks are fully constrained to their full limitations. They're going to be not collapsing or ex extending further than they're actually going to be doing in, in real life. The steering isn't going past uh, any extents. You know, you'll set all your extents on your steering and your suspension. So you can lock it out. You know, you could fully bump it out. And you don't really want it to be to where it's like, oh, it's touching barely. Usually you want some room in there. And so you can measure that. And so a lot of the times you don't need to have any kind of interference problem solver intuitive computer telling you to do this or that you just know you can see it right away and you know everything's set so as long as all your constraints and your limitations are set correctly uh, you should have no problem visually seeing what's going on and visually you can measure it also you you have tools there to measure you know how close you are to one thing and a lot of times you know i'll set stuff to it where it's only a quarter inch away from hitting and be comfortable with that now, one aspect here is of, of manufacturing the the complete truck is obviously these components that get machined, but you know, the, there's also the tubular structure for the actual chassis and the rollover structure, etc., engine mounts, everything else that goes into a complete vehicle. When you've you've developed this model and you're basically ready to ready to hit print and, and produce the finished vehicle. Does the the chassis components, the tube tubular chassis components, do these get CNC bent and notched as well? Yes. Based on your model, or is this hand fabricated? No. So uh, generally speaking, um, if we're talking just like CAD models to real life, everything is laser cut. So it's laser cut and CNC bent. Um, a lot of the new machines that are coming out, they have the ability to roll and bend. So you can add rolls into your uh, weld mint features or your chassis design, and then you can have them uh, basically transition to a bend if you'd like. So you can get a little bit more intricate with your designs. Um, but for the most part, yeah, everything is uh, everything that's done on the computer is 100% CNC cut and bent. Okay, so again, you can guarantee essentially the finished product is going to fit and look exactly like your model. Yeah, and like I said, uh, depending on who's doing it, you know, we've had some cases where they're a little off, you know, the vendors aren't going to be exactly the same. But there's some guys that 
they can get it right on the money. But that's why we also use fixtures. So the fixtures, you know, we design the tables and the t- we have towers that we mount to the fixtures. And these fixtures are reassurance that everything is going to be exactly where it's at in the computer. So between um, the CNC bending and the CNC cutting, the fixtures hold everything in place. And it's very important for the fixtures to be there anyways, because when you weld it, the, the materials are going to heat up and they're going to want to move around on, on you. So the fixtures hold everything in place. So there'll be... Um, a lot of fixtures that go into the design process as well. And then uh, essentially that that's just there for, for keeping them in place while they're being welded and also making sure that everything is hundred percent accurate to the computer. Uh, if anyone wants to sort of get a bit understanding of what these fixtures are, um, uh, a bit of a dive through your Instagram feed will, will show, show those up and you know, I've seen again on your Instagram. You've you've got those fixtures essentially uh, attached to your your fixture table, which is a nice flat surface that acts as a reference plane. So you've got those basically going to locations where there'll be, for example, a trailing arm will attach. So it's a way of ensuring that in space those components are fitted in exactly the the right location. Correct? Yeah, exactly. Yep. And yeah, the actual Instagram, there's a few um, pictures. If you kind of navigate through them, it'll show the process. And I try to, I try to do a lot of that with my Instagram. I try to show like a nice shot in the beginning. And then if you click on it, you can kind of, um, storytell kind of, you know, you kind of go through, you see the design yeah, I, I, and I, I, manufacturing I, process behind it. I, I appreciate that, you know, getting that understanding rather than just looking at a pretty picture and scrolling on to, to, to the next Instagram feed of a, of a cat jumping off a couch or something stupid. <laughs> you know, w- w- it's nice to get that more in-depth understanding of actually what's going on. Though, am, am I right in saying that you're actually developing the the fixtures themselves as in, in CAD as well? Yeah. So everything's sort of developed around the, the whole, the same process. Yeah, everything's done in the computer. Yeah, so it's not something that you can open a catalog and just order everything, which would be nice. But um, no, it's it's all just kind of thought out and you look at, you know, you try to find a, a design for the fixture table and everything that's going to be uh, continually used for the next projects to come. Maybe use um, some primary fixture components that can be reused so that you don't have to constantly cut really large pieces of fixtures, uh, rather just attach, you know. So, um, so yeah, all that's... Uh, it's designed in the computer, it's drawn in the computer, and then when those get manufactured, those are accurate as well, just with the drawings of the trucks as well. Okay. Uh, straying away a little bit from the the actual 3D modeling side of things, but just getting into the fabrication, um, the material that, that's being used for the construction of the, the chassis, is, is this all chromoly? Yeah, it's 100% chromoly. As a matter of fact, I don't think there's any mild steel in the shop, or there might be a sign that says no mild steel allowed. <laughs> But everything is forty one thirty chromoly, one hundred percent in the shop. All right. So my my understanding there is essentially, if we compare a mild steel to to chromoly, the the strength is significantly greater, which means that you can use a thinner cross sectional area, thinner wall thickness in the chromoly material compared to mild steel in order to get the same strength, but at, at a weight advantage. That is, is that about correct? Yeah, one hundred percent. Yep. It's definitely um, because of its higher strength, we are using thinner walls than what you would typically use like in a DOM application. It also, it, it burns a little different too. It welds different. Um, it welds a lot cleaner than mild steel would. The TIG welding, for example, that the guys are doing, 
that's how you get those like really brilliant colors and like all these super nice vaults. It's because the chromoly melts a certain way where the rod and, and, and that material, they just work really well together. One of one of the concerns uh, around the chromoly fabrication is is around the the welding and um, particularly it's a material that's not very uh, forgiving if you are using excessive heat and uh, over the years we've seen you know numerous examples of roll cages that have actually shattered on impact because uh, the chromoly if it's overheated can become brittle essentially around the heat affected zone either side of the of the weld so there's a lot of this come down to welding technique uh knowledge on the part of the the welder and fit up to avoid the potential for those sorts of issues yeah i mean the welders that we have at the shop they're they're very experienced and they um they have a way of working with their welds and whatnot but you know they do uh tend to do like multiple passes on some of the welds like they don't just do a like they won't just do one weld on most of the chassis it'll have a root weld and then it'll be cleaned and then uh, like wire wheeled, for example. And then after that, it'll go through for a second pass. I, I can see what you're saying. If I feel like if you're inexperienced and you're sitting there with the torch and you're just kind of working your way around there, if you let that, that heat line just really just flow out of there, then you could be causing some damage to the material. But for the most part, I mean, you can see clearly that the welds are nice structural welds because the heat lines are really nice and consistent. They're not really far out. You're not having like, uh, the graining, you know, when the welds turn really gray, you know, you're not having discoloration like that. So um, there's a lot of things, but most of it comes down to the person that's welding it and their experience in welding the material for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in terms of the the sort of abuse that these these trucks are seeing in competition, and you mentioned earlier, sort of thousand miles of of competition use over some pretty gnarly terrain. Uh, do you do you sort of have a, a life on any of the components or does that safety factor that we discussed before, you've basically got enough excess strength that they don't need to be, nothing needs to be replaced unless it's physically been damaged for the life of the, the truck? Yeah, that, well, they'll have uh, prep, you know. So like during prep, if, if something looks damaged or um, out of place, you know, like it needs to be replaced or replace it at that point. A lot of the times the areas that get affected the most are rod ends or hinds. They tend to wear out and need to be serviced more often than anything. Um, but most of the times you'll look at a part for any kind of structural fractures or anything like this or tearing or um, if you hit something really hard, then we'll tear it down or something like this. But uh, for the most part, it, it all comes down to the prep, you know. In terms of the experience you've had, it's really vast now in the industry, and I'm sure you've seen numerous vehicles from you know home built through to some of your competitors. Could you are there, are there any sort of uh, consistent engineering fails that you see of of design elements that people just should not be incorporating into a vehicle? Any any sort of tips for our, our listeners of what not to do when you're designing maybe a suspension arm or a component of that nature? Oh man, uh, that's a hard one. I don't know because everybody's so opinionated. I would hate to say something's <laughs> wrong from right or right from wrong, you know? Um, I think everybody has their own uh, beliefs, especially in the off-road industry. Everybody has their own beliefs on how things should be made. And that's fine. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion because, you know, that's how we evolve in, in any sport is people thinking out of the box. So I wouldn't condone anybody for any design realistically. As far as anything that's breaking, I think the only things that break are the, 
the fairly obvious ones, you know. But when you start off, I mean, I think the hardest part to start off in, in designing for like trucks, for example, is the understanding of, you know, like the thickness of materials that you need to use for the application and, you know, what kind of cross sections you might need for like inner, inner structures of sheet metal, pro- uh, sheet metal products or even chassis layouts, you know. Uh, I, I do think that um, one of the areas that tends to be a problem is if the if the roof isn't laced correctly and it doesn't a lot of times if the the upper tubes on the roof don't lace out to um the a pillars um that there's a there's a chance that that roof can collapse on you in in a an accident um okay but Definitely that's not what you want yeah but that's uh again most of these guys are doing that right anyway it's just one of those things most of the guys are just um are figuring it out and and going out there and taking what they have and, and making it happen. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, one of the the more common issues I, I do see is is people designing uh, a suspension component or suspension arm where they've inadvertently end up using uh, a rod end or a heim joint, as you've referred to them, uh, and place that in, in bending, which, I mean, again, it's one of those situations where uh, plenty of, of race cars are getting, getting around with a, a rod end located so that it's subjected to a bending force. But um, in the perfect world, uh, ideally, we want to try and stay away from that. They're not really as strong in bending as they are in compression and tension, correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, rod ends, the rod ends that we're using on trucks are so much more massive than the ones that you guys are using in your <laughs> motorsports stuff. I, I don't know how you no guys doubt. even use your rod ends for your suspension or trust them. But the rod ends that we have, I mean, they are burly. I mean, they feel like a stone in your hand. Um, so yeah, I mean, we also try not to hit massive boulders at 100 mile an hour. That, <laughs> right. That's one of the ways we we get around that. Yeah, I mean, I would, I don't know, I think like a, a three quarter inch rod and has some sort of like I don't know, thirty thousand pounds of radial load, and these rod ends that we're using are way bigger than those. So yeah, these uh, these you don't, I, and I see what you're saying. I know, I know what you're exactly what you're talking about. We don't have that inherited problem in trucks as far as bending rod ends, like most guys having cars doing that because they're just so freaking strong <laughs> like, sure. so you yeah. don't have to worry about the angle of the rod and it's not as critical as you would think like in, in comparison to a car where they're using lighter weight rod ends okay all right now a lot of people listening to this are obviously going to be interested in, in learning some of the the skills just scraping the the surface of some of the skills that you've developed and I'm just wondering if you could give maybe a, a few pointers for those who who want to start developing skills in 3D modeling. What what's a, the the easiest way to get started, and what advice could you give there? A lot of it comes down to practice. I mean, there's not enough seat time that you can put in to actually designing. Um, I have a lot of seat time. Uh, I've been doing it for a long time, like I explained, since I was a kid. But uh, even the last couple of years, I mean, I'm on my computer a lot, you know, sometimes 14 hour days, taking breaks in between six, seven days a week. So, I mean, every single time I'm on my computer and I'm drawing something, I'm always learning or, or figuring something else out to add to like my belt, so to speak. So I think it all comes down to just seat time. You know, if you want to do it, you can do it for sure. You just got to sit down. You got to put the time aside to do it. I think that a lot of that comes down to getting your priorities aligned with what you really want to be doing. I'm, I'm interested though because it sounds like you've also had two two sides to this coin in terms of 
you started with the the high school CAG courses. So you've got some actual you know high school level training. Mm-hmm. Then it sounded like you spent a huge amount of your own time just testing, developing, and learning by yourself. And then you went and did the solid modeling again, a, an actual uh, you know structured course. What would you say is is some actual structured training around this uh, essential, or is that just something you're going to need if you want to get to a certain level? Um, well, there's always YouTube Academy, is what I like to call it. <laughs> Basically, you spend a <laughs> ton of time on YouTube figuring it out. But man, definitely, there are some things that I learned going to trade schools that you cannot learn it on YouTube. And so, if you could actually, if you were really serious about you know learning a little bit more, I'm not talking about going and getting like a degree like we talked earlier. But there's a lot of there's a lot of trade schools out there that are accessible either online or even at a local college or uh, locally everywhere. You just got to reach out to them and see what they have to offer. And sometimes it might not be exactly what you want, but you still should sign up for them and do them because. Um, Again, when I took the courses with Kativ Technologies, some of the stuff that they taught me, you know, I just, I, there's no way I would have been able to figure that out on my own. And, and not that I even use that information, but it was a foundation. And the same thing goes for like my computer graphics class that I took at the college. You know, yeah, you can use Photoshop, you can use Illustrator, but they show you the fundamentals. You know, they show you like, you know, what kind of, um, file extension you need to be using for this certain thing or what a vector file is or, or anything like that. All of that kind of coincides with what I do today now, because had I not had that foundation, I wouldn't be doing um, or outputting the illustrations that I can today. And so that's been kind of like a collective effort um, of all the things that I've learned combined to kind of put that out. And um, as far as I know, you were talking about the rendering, you're like, well, what rendering software do you use? And I get that a lot. I don't use any rendering software. <laughs> it's a screenshot, essentially. Wow, okay. Yeah, people get blown away because they're like, what do you mean? Well, I, I've i been messing with colors and, and layers and materials since I was in high school. And so when I got my, when I started getting more efficient at Inventor, um, I kind of just always did that. You know, I just said, oh, I'm going to apply the right material to this, apply the right material to that. And I it would just get under my skin, maybe OCD. I'm like, well, that bolt's not the right color, you know? So then eventually yeah. the whole drawing, you got a thousand files and every single thing's colored the right way. And then that makes a really nice illustration. And um, uh, fortunately, you know, the backdrop you, you preset and uh, basically the whole thing that I do is all presets, you know, for the most part. I preset it and it's been a, um, kind of evolving over time, but it's nothing too crazy. You know, it's, um, it's like I said, it's a screen grab and that's the pictures that you see is actually the interface that I work on day in and day out. So you guys see the pictures of the nice drawings. Well, I'm seeing that through my work environment every day, but yeah, it's just kind of like I set it all up and I grab a picture and everything's just preset. And I just always, I'm very meticulous about every little detail of it. I used to render a lot. And I, I respect all that because that takes a lot of time and I'm familiar with that process. But when I try to render on Inventor, it comes out worse. So I was like, <laughs> I don't like the I don't like the render processing part that Inventor offers. So I'm like, the next best thing is I just want to screen grab. Um, I'm also very keen on like getting the right shot. So I'm I'm like I, I'm re- I like photography. And so like a lot of the times when I take a picture of like something I'm illustrating. 
I visualize actually taking a picture of it in person. Uh, it kind of gives a, a nicer view of, of what I'm doing. So again, it's all collective. Like it's everything I've done in the past and present and just kind of, that's just how it comes out. <laughs> There's no like real big secret on it. What, one question that sort of comes out of that, that um, I probably should have asked a little bit earlier <laughs> Everything that you produce, you, you sort of look at these these screenshots that you're posting to your Instagram, and I mean everything just looks visually amazing. The the components that you're designing, when when you are designing them, sort of what consideration are you taking for the aesthetics or how that part looks versus just pure raw functionality? Because I mean, you, know, you could have two parts that, for all intents and purposes, serve the same task and, and do an adequate job but one looks great and the other just looks rough and ugly essentially yeah i have a, I guess i have a very unique uh styling cue when it comes to cer- certain things i like a lot of draft angles i like a lot of like aesthetic um feel to the parts um it makes it more challenging to produce when you're manufacturing it it's harder to machine it's not <laughs> i definitely don't make my own life easier i tend to make it harder for some reason but it's always cool to actually make these things come to life. But a lot of the times, yeah, I, I'm I'm not really like drawn to like conventional machined parts. Um, I like a I take I get a, I get a lot of inspiration through like um, motorcycles or even Formula One, and um, depending on what it is, even architecture. So it's kind of like a modern warfare kind of like weapons look to it. But I like a lot of draft angles and. Uh, a lot of times I like things to kind of have a nice shape to them no matter what. So I, I use, I mess with them quite a bit. I, I think people feel like, Oh, he just came up with this, but, um, some of it takes a lot of effort. And a lot of the parts I've designed that I have six or seven, you know, renditions of that part to eventually come out to the outcome. So it's not like the first time it was all done. And sometimes I take a break for a day or two, even, you know, so sometimes I'll, I'll start a project and, I'll get a little bit of brain fog and I'll say, you know, I don't push myself. I say, okay, I'm going to go on to another project. And when I come back in a day, I'll look at it with fresh eyes and I'll continue working with it. So I'm kind of going in and out of a lot of projects like that. Okay. In terms of the tools that you've got at your disposal at the moment, is there anything that you wished you could do that the current technology is is really holding you back on? Um. I don't know. There's a lot of cool stuff out there. And fortunately at our shop, we have really cool machines, you know, um, we have really nice welders. We have nice tools. Uh, we have the UMC 1000, which is our five axis CNC machine. We have a three axis mill, two axis lathe. Um, we're adding, um, a tube laser cutter in the next month. And we're also adding, um, a laser bed for, um, for actually cutting all the sheet metal. And we're also adding a CNC bender um, as well, all in the next month. So we'll be pretty well equipped uh, at our shop. But as far as industry is concerned, I think really the only thing we're lacking on is accessibility to 3D printing metal. I think that would be cool to access more often. But you know that's going to eventually come out, you know, with time. So yeah, no, no doubt. Just just like the plastic 3D printers, uh, it'll come down and and cost significantly and become much more accessible. Yeah. It's like the movie Jurassic Park. I think the in the intro, the the guy 3D prints the esophagus of a dinosaur, and they're like, "We're gonna emulate the sound." And um, <laughs> and watching that as a kid, you're like, "That'll never happen." 
<laughs> and now everybody's 3D printing, you know, phone charge holders or something funny. I don't know. All right, Matt. We'll we'll move towards wrapping this thing up. It's been uh, it's been great so far. Uh, huge amount of information in there, and uh, we really do appreciate you uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to to give us all of that deep background. Uh, we've got three questions we ask all of our guests here to wrap up, and uh, the the first of those, and maybe we've touched on on a, a little bit of it there as well, but. Uh, what what sort of next for you in the future, either you personally or you and Kibitech? Yeah, so I mean, uh, in the near future, we have a lot of plans for the business. Um, there's a lot of new trucks that we're adding. Uh, we're venturing off a little bit from off-road in some applications. We have a couple projects that I'm super excited to show in the next couple months that I've been working on uh, that aren't off-road related. Uh, but they will be actually being manufactured through the business. And unfortunately, I can't say anything yet. but you guys will see it in the future. Watch this space. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, as far as uh, personally, you know, we're, I'm still, there's a few things I want to add. I'd like to eventually start a small community or website where, you know, you know, uh, students or uh, people can have an, a smaller outlet for CAD related things, but that'll probably be in about a year or so. So kind of still collectively thinking about some things that would be cool to add, um, Kind of like how you guys are doing just on a smaller scale, just cat related little things. But um, some of the more stuff that people have been asking for and just kind of giving back a little bit to to the cat community as much as I can. But um, uh, I'm sure uh, I'm sure people will be um, eating up anything that you put out. Yeah. And then um, QB Tech has been doing a great job with their YouTube videos. So I've been trying to put a little more input into that as well. And um their their media guy is just amazing. So, but yeah, I mean, all of this is is uh, I'm definitely grateful for Kibbe Tech for giving me the opportunity. I feel like uh, more companies should give people opportunities for sure and trust that if they um, if they believe in their uh, in, uh, their employees that they could uh, evolve into something great. Um, I owe him a lot because uh, you know I don't think that I'd be here talking to you if it wasn't for him uh, giving me an opportunity to kind of show what I can do. Um, it's been a long journey for myself, but um, uh, it's been a lot of hard work. And I, I would say that's the other thing is uh, you, anybody can do what I'm doing. You just got to put in the time. You got to put in the effort. You got to put in the work. And uh, it, it just comes with time. You know, you just keep on doing it. You're consistent about it and it'll come. But um, if you like it, just keep on doing it. But it sounds like that's probably the answer to to our next question. Maybe you've got some more insight you want to add. Our next question is uh, looking at your your career so far and everything that you've achieved, everything you've learned and everything you've done. Is there any advice you'd give to a younger version of yourself to sort of fast track that progress? Yeah, definitely. Like I said before, I think school is very important. Had I had a little bit more guidance growing up, I feel like I probably would have just started off in the direction in mechanical engineering and skipped about, uh, I don't know, eight years of hard work and labor, figuring it out secondhand or through peers. But um, I'm grateful for everything uh, and everywhere I've, I've, I've gone through and all the experiences I've had. But um, overall, yeah, I think um, um, I'm also grateful for every student that reaches out to me. And um, I have a lot of people that reach out to me on Instagram. And that's one of um, my favorite parts of Instagram is the students from different universities always asking me like how I got where I, I'm at. And I always think like, man, 
you guys are in such a better position already by being in school and getting in that direction that I feel like my advice is nowhere near as good as where you're already heading. And, and like I said, had I had more hindsight of what I'm doing today, I would have stayed in school and, and probably stayed a little bit more focused on that. But like I said, it, even with schooling, you still need to put in the work. So uh, no matter what, you, you got to dedicate yourself to, to the trade and, um, and definitely put in the time. And, um, and that paper is, is only going to do so much for you. You still have to put in the work for sure. Yeah, the, there's unfortunately no substitute for, um, as you put it earlier, the, the seat time. You, you just need to physically be on the tools, whatever that may be, a, a TIG welder, a laptop keyboard, mm-hmm. or in your case, 3D modelling software. Right. All right, uh, last question for today. Matt, if uh, people want to follow you, and I 100% urge that they do, great account to follow on Instagram. Uh, where can they do so? Uh, what What are your social media outlets? Yeah, primarily right now is um, just on Instagram, and it's Matt underscore 826, and 8 is spelled out, E-I-G-H-T, and then the number 26. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's my main outlet for most of my, uh, content, uh, eventually might start up, uh, and add a few more like the Twitter stuff and, uh, who knows, maybe TikTok. There's enough cool action going around the shop where these trucks are just flying in and out of there and they're just being built and they're super cool to look at. Um, and maybe even add more cat stuff on that, but for the most part, just Instagram for now. Okay, perfect. And we'll put a, a link to your Instagram account in the show notes as well so people can't miss that. Look, Matt, been great to chat and thanks again for your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, all right, the that best concludes for our the interview. Thanks, and before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis, and race driver education. Now, remember, you've got that coupon code code you can use podcast 75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.